As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. So on this episode, I'm a bit of a fanboy, actually. I've been following Manolo's stuff on social media, his videos, his writings, and I'm, again, a bit of a fanboy. I first came across our guest today via Vijay Prashad, who's another person that I take a lot from and draw from. So thank you so much, and thank you for joining the Malcolm Effect today. It's an honor to join you and, and to speak with you and, and all our friends who are listening. Thank you so much. So we're going to go straight into it. As someone who is heavily involved, who's been to Cuba and is seeing what has been unfolding. Can you paint the picture for us of what's actually happening? Well, I think it's it, it would take a long time to give the whole story or the whole of picture. But I think the key elements, I think, of what we're seeing now is the fact that there's been a war against Cuba for the last 60 years. I mean, yeah. the Cuban people, against all odds, have been trying to build a different form of society, a society on their own terms, an independent sovereign project towards socialism. And the U.S. has been waging a war against it on all fronts. I mean, and we've seen literally every form of war displayed against Cuba, everything from the actual blockade that prevents and limits Cuba's access to food and medicine abroad, but also the fact that Cuban children have been attacked, terrorist attacks against Cuba. The U.S. has at times introduce biological diseases or weapons against Cuba. The U.S. has engaged in all forms of terroristic activities. And to this add that in the last few years, they've particularly invested or funded a lot of counter-revolutionary media projects, mostly out of Southern Florida or Miami, to begin to create realities that don't exist. For example, they wanted to create the online or the Twitter reality that in Cuba, everyone or the majority of the population was ready to overthrow the Cuban revolution on July 11th, mm -hmm. which wasn't the case. They created this reality, again, only virtual, that there was massive repression on the streets and many people were being killed and arrested and so on, when it actually wasn't the case. I think this is, this is truly, I think, we have to sort of always look at what everything that's happening around Cuba, even if we are wanting to critique Cuba for whatever reason, we have to take into account that there's just been a 60-year war against the Cuban people that's exactly. been relentless. Absolutely, absolutely. So when you see what the mainstream line is, and even those who purport themselves to be leftists and, you know, the line, we should listen to the protesters, what, what goes through your mind? First of all is, you know, I think a lot of the, that discourse about listen to the protesters or listen to the Cubans is often actually sort of wired down in identity politics, which I completely yep. don't. This whole thing of speak, you have to listen to the victims, but who, who decides who the victims are? Exactly. Who decides who the right Cubans are to listen to? Because there were, I would say, maybe a couple of thousand in Havana who went out to protest, mm -hmm. maybe a bit more. And that's okay. I can listen to them. And I actually did listen to them. But I can also listen to the half a million Cubans who also went out to protest in favor of the revolution. 
who listens to them? And I think that's the complexities of our time that capitalism wants to be very selective and choose who we listen to and why. Often, we very rarely hear the voices of people in struggle, the people who actually want to build a system not dominated or subjugated by U.S. imperialism. Thank you for that eloquent um, response. Absolutely, absolutely. I think oftentimes we, it's very easy to be on the sidelines and ignore the complexities that go into overturning oligarchy. And, you know, especially when you're being attacked. And again, I mean, for me, I'll be very honest. There are sometimes we think about leftist movements historically and we look back to the past and we find some, I don't know, I mean, I don't know your positions, but my position is sometimes I think, hmm, I find this difficult to explain or understand or expl- or justify or moralize, for example. However, I find with the Cuban Revolution and Castro very easy. I mean, when we look at Castro's internationalism, his support for the, you know, the struggles, anti-colonial struggles in the continent are numerous to people who he support globally, the, the Cuban doctors today. I find the Cuban one to be very an easy one to defend, an easy one to be on the side of. So I find it quite interesting when you find those who are leftists in America, particularly those who, or those who live in the imperial core, I find it almost like they cannot be on the side of the Cuban revolution. Where do you think that comes from? Well, it comes from a lot of places. I mean, I think partly because it's easy or it's it become easier to let's say identify with the nicer pr aspects of the cuban revolution mm-hmm. yes the fact that cuba sends doctors around the world it's very easy to support that it's easy to support the idea that cuba sends teachers around the world that yeah. cuba creates vaccines for the world it is harder to empathize though or to be in active militant solidarity with a process that also makes mistakes. Mm-hmm. Often, I think we have, particularly for activists, progressive people, leftists in what you call the imperial core or the global north, high expectations for what countries working towards socialism can do or should be. Um, yeah. Standards and expectations that they would never hold to progressive forces in their own countries, often. There, there's a tendency to critique Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and at the same time, go hard on on defending the Democrats or sometimes reactionary sectors in, in yeah. their own political circles. But I strongly believe that Cuba has made many mistakes mm-hmm. because it's a human process. It's exactly. a process of revolution that triumphed in 1959, but it was young people leading it. Mm-hmm. It was black people. It was young yeah. women. It was everyone who, in a sense, had never been given the opportunity to rule, to actually lead, to take power. So what can you expect? Of course, many mistakes have been made. Has Cuba already vanished racism? Has, 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 does racism not exist in Cuba? Of course it exists. Yeah. Of course there's inequality. Of course there's poverty. The thing to defend in Cuba, it's the, in fact the right of the Cuban people to make mistakes. It's actually the fact that we should defend Cuba's ability to continue building a socialist project where they will continue to make mistakes. But for every mistake they make, I think the Cubans have proven themselves quite capable, not just of correcting and overcoming those mistakes, but building something way more beautiful. I mean, Absolutely. to think, again, that a small island of 11 million people right next to their greatest enemy, who is every day pumping millions for their overthrow, mm-hmm. still manages, in the middle of a pandemic as well, 
to develop five vaccines. Yep. Offers it to the world free of charge. Still manages to provide food and clothing to the majority of its people. Still manages to provide education and healthcare for its people. Still manages to actually provide a lively cultural access to its people. Mm-hmm. Who else can talk about that in the middle of this pandemic that we're living in? Absolutely. And you know what made me, when I realized I was done with liberals, when I quoted this point and people tried to say to me, oh, Cuba exports terrorism via their doctors. I thought, yeah, if you can believe that, then you actually can believe anything. <laughs> and like, I well, literally... I call, I call those people racist. Yeah. I, I, I will call them racist because nobody questions USAID. Yep. Nobody questions the Peace Corps. Yeah. Everyone assumes that these entities that are all heavily funded by the U.S. government and heavily led and monitored by the CIA are somehow benign, you know, forms of cooperation with the world. Yeah. But everyone then assumes that Cuba's offers of solidarity with doctors and teachers and help across the world has some deep and dark political agenda. And I say dark because... It's truly the racist intentions of of the West to always look at Cuba with the same eyes with which they look at themselves. I mean, yep. essentially, the idea of calling the you know the Cuban doctors who go out on medical missions to call them slaves is insulting. Absolutely, absolutely. And what I've in speaking about, like you mentioned racism, and you mentioned uh, has Cuba done away with racism? What I don't like, and I found this to be the case when I engage with. All too often, reactionaries, particularly those who are, you know, black nationalists, they speak about, well, Cuba is anti-black then, isn't it? I look at, look, and then they scapegoat the Afro-Cubans. And what I don't like is Afro-Cubans are only ever mentioned. There's never, their well-being is never mentioned normally. It's only when they want to make a point of kind of dissing the revolution and say, oh, but look what happened. Look how Afro-Cubans are treated. Um, what would you say to that? No, I mean, I always, in, in that type of argument, I always ask people to define, what do they mean by anti-black? What does anti-black mean to you? Because to me, my definition of anti-black is a society that ultimately robs black people of their dignity every day. Yeah. The U.S. is a profoundly anti-black society because Absolutely. the U.S. doesn't provide housing for black people. Mm-hmm. The U.S. doesn't provide healthcare for black people. The U.S. doesn't provide any forms of living with dignity, doesn't provide decent wages, basically does everything within its power to make sure that black people are either Maintain, oppressed, exploited, or killed in the process. On the other hand, Cuba, a society that still deals with the vestiges of racism, of racism that has been in place since Cuba was colonized over 500 years ago, somehow manages to give black people way more dignity and way more possibilities to grow as human beings than any other society in the Western Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. So who's anti-black? What is anti-black? No, but this is but even when we think about it, like a race first politic and anti-black, it always supports like the liberal understanding of racism. It just relegates racism to the realm of abstraction, as opposed to actually, okay, what are the material conditions? I remember reading a chart from like the eighties and Cuba had one of the lowest disparities in life expectancy between white and black people in the world. That's what I want. So when I think of like, okay, anti-blackness, let's root it in the material conditions of black people in that place, rather than talking about it as a flipping abstraction. I, okay, well, moving on. I know you are, I, I'm going to say you're a genius when it comes to <laughs> international politics. So when you think what's happening, in, if you could you give me the brief breakdown, I know this can take forever. What should we be watching out for in Latin America? What's going on? What are the socialist projects looking like? 
Well, I, I am definitely not a genius in anything, but <laughs> what I like to do is to read and to study. And that's something I, I strongly recommend to all our friends and comrades that, you know, I think engaging with Marxism in our time in many ways means not just to act or not just to do, but it also means to heavily study and read and to try to understand precisely what are the material conditions in our world? What are the realities that exist beyond where we live mm -hmm. in order to actually shape our worldview? I mean, I think right now in, in Latin America, we're living a period of intense struggle between yeah. two competing projects, a project that is firmly rooted in neoliberalism, rooted in U.S. imperialism, rooted in a project that essentially I would say it's a project of death because it seeks to rob people of their livelihoods. And you can say in a sense that that's spearheaded by leaders like Bolsonaro, but also like by countries like Colombia and others in the region. But there's another project in contention, which is, I think, a left project, a socialist project or a project towards socialism that is so well exemplified by the projects that Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua are trying to lead. But I think there's a huge contention over which project, which of these will actually dominate the political spectrum in Latin America. And I think that's the struggle that's that's sort of taking place. I think that in this upcoming period of elections, both of what's coming up in Brazil, where Lula da Silva, who can be criticized for many things, but it's still you know the candidate of the left and still the candidate of, of the working class in Brazil, you know, has a strong chance of, of winning the elections if there isn't, you know, a major U.S. intervention, as, as there has been in the past in Brazil. Yeah. Also, the, the prospects of the elections in Nicaragua, where, again, Daniel Ortega could be criticized for many things, but is still the favorite option of the working people of Nicaragua um, and who want to see his administration continue, will probably win unless there is major U.S. intervention. So I think we have to see what continues to happen in the continent, not just in terms of these electoral struggles, but also in terms of the large movement struggles that take place as part of the contention of these two projects. We saw that in Colombia with the major protests that took place just a few months ago. We will continue to see those type of protests across the continent. It's, it's the most likely scenario. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, you've mentioned several times now you can criticize this these people for many things kind of my flirtation my flirting with like leftist circles i found a spectrum those who say you can't critique anything or those who are maybe like critique every single thing and they're almost falling to the, like the, the lines of the u.s state department <laughs> <laughs> so that's the spectrum I, i've come across and found what would you say is someone who wants to be an anti-imperialist and internationalist who believes in 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 kind of bringing or bringing forth a new epoch of towards a socialist construction, what would you say? How do we critique those who would naturally be our allies? Well, I, I always think about it in very concrete terms. Mm -hmm. What informs our anti-imperialism? What informs our Marxist politics? One, it's that we actually want to win. Yeah. We, we actually want to build a project of emancipation for working class people around the world. Yeah. knowing that that's the only thing that is going to liberate humanity. But we want to win. We want to actually kick the asses of capitalism and bring in a new society. Yeah. So I always think about in terms of how do we win? Okay. What will advance the struggle? Does this advance the struggle or does it take us back? And often, full-out, all-out critique of 
progressive forces around the planet always backfires on the left. Yeah. It doesn't help advance the struggle. It only creates more division. It takes away confidence in our own members and militants of the left from believing in the left project in the future. Mm-hmm. So why engage out in full-out unnecessary critique? Okay. Now, having no critique, having no critical understanding of the realities that the world lives in is also a position that doesn't advance our struggles. I think it's a question of being critical, being fully aware of the contradictions, yeah, and at the same time, sort of digging our, our knees in the ground to say, we have to defend the spaces that we have built, the spaces that we have conquered, you know? Yeah. Imagine, you know, to be honest, the left still has not recovered from the fall of Soviet Union in 1991. Mm-hmm. Imagine what the impact would be right now if the Cuban Revolution were to fall. Imagine what would young people 10 years from now be able to talk about or reference in terms of socialism if Cuba were not existing as a socialist state. It would be a huge setback, not just politically, but morally, emotionally, in, in a very subjective way, it would be a huge setback. Yeah. In fact, all the people who say they care about black people in Cuba and you know who they say are being oppressed by the revolution, I would welcome them to, to ask themselves, what would Cuba look like if there wasn't a revolution? Exactly. What would be <laughs> black people? Do, do they think all black people are, are now going to be, you know, living in, 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 in the fancy houses and, and having the best jobs when, when capitalism returns? What do they think will happen? So I, I always push, be critical, ask the tough questions, be fully aware, don't blind yourself to reality, and at the same time, be willing to defend the necessary. Because... No. We are literally in a war between imperialism and these countries and these people. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Turning, shifting gears, if you're speaking to maybe like a younger audience, some people who are listeners who are trying to maybe adopt a leftist politic, first and foremost, are there any particular texts that you would recommend? Oh, man, that's such a tough question, eh? I know, I know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I love to read. I mean, I, I always feel, you know, there's so many different things to read. I mean, I think everyone... Provide us with a starter pack. What would be the starter pack? <laughs> oh, to me, there's the, the starter pack goes in different directions. I mean, I definitely think everyone should read the Communist Manifesto. Yep. I mean, it, it sounds like the obvious thing, but it's not always the obvious thing for everyone. It's such a necessary text, in my opinion. I thought you were going to say capital. I'm, I'm still struggling to go through it. No, capital <laughs> is definitely something everyone should definitely do. But at their own time, I, I think, yeah. and, and, and there are actual Marxist texts that, in my opinion, should never be read alone. They should always okay. be read in groups. And you think Capital is one of them? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Okay. I don't think I would have been able to go through Capital myself if it wasn't through a collective debate. Because So, a, so when, when, when will you be putting Capital for, on for us then to go through it? Oh, my God. <laughs> that, You've, you've actually oh you know what I'll, i'm taking the challenge very seriously we'll have to organize Please it do. let's do that let's do that but you have Please. to promise me you'll join the debate oh i'll definitely join and bring all the people I'm involved bring people along as well so that'll be really good man that'll be really really good <laughs> i'll hold you to that i got it in recording now awesome <laughs> well i'm gonna tell you apart from the communist manifesto i think a very easy good text to also study for young marxists trying to understand capital in its early formations and, how, and sort of thinking about how it looks today 
is everyone should read Wage, Labor, and Capital by Marx. It's a small text, Wage, Labor, and Capital and Value, Price, and Profit. It's just like if you want to just understand Marx's basic understandings of, of capitalism without actually having read Capital, that's a really nice short text to to read. Okay, brilliant. Okay, cool, brilliant. Thank you so much. And then, read everything. Communist read every- everything. <laughs> exactly. To understand the world. So what would you, if, if you were to talk to someone, again, who's adopting or just making tr- the transition to side of politics or trying to understand the world in which they live, why would you say it's important that we adopt a Marxist critique to our understanding of the world? Well, you ask all the good questions. And, and you know what it is. I, I try to be a proxy, <laughs> so like, I know how people, how, how people, or people will come. People question me a lot on certain things, and I see what's going on online. So I love to just bring people on to answer the questions I know people will have. <laughs> no, I mean it's it's a very good question. I mean, I ask myself all this all the time. I mean, yeah. why why do we become Marxists, or why do we want to hold Marxist ideas? And I think partly is the recognition that we live in a world that is so firmly rooted in an idealist understanding of reality. Mm -hmm. Meaning this constant belief that if you wish it, if you think it, it can happen. The idea that everything sort of is based on ideas, that that ideas are basically the premise for for the ways we live. Reality is much more complex. And when I started struggling around, why is it that the things that we want, we can't just think them into reality, I realized that I needed something stronger. I needed something more concrete. And that concreteness came from studying Marxism, which Mm -hmm. sort of said, hey, whatever. And and this is actually, for me, the biggest thing. Marxism is not a dogma. It's not a a set of beliefs. Marxism is a methodology. It's a way of approaching reality and approaching life. Whatever it is that you're thinking about, whatever it is you're facing, whatever realities you're dealing with, Try to understand it. Go to the root of it. And in the root, try to understand what surrounds it. That is the Marxist method. That is the approach that Marx, in, in a sense, sort of synthesized or summarized for us. And I think that's helped me, in, I would say really weirdly enough, in very personal affairs of my own, but in how I approach political work. My whole understanding of organizing and activism and doing political work changed dramatically once I realized, shit, there's something bigger to build against. There's something bigger that we actually have to organize against. There's something bigger that actually requires not just my feelings and subjectivities, but actually requires millions of people around the planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you said right there, I was just snapping away in my head because I can relate so fucking much to what you said. (laughs) No, like literally, because beforehand, I've, you know, been involved in like mainstream discourses of like race, particularly, I mean, I I entered activism through like my own personal experience and lived experiences. And then you find when amongst the neoliberal crowd, it's literally, it was literally just wrapped up in the realm of let's get more black and brown faces in high places. Let's diversify capital. And I thought to myself, nah, this cannot be it. And when I started speaking to like, you know, particularly black Marxists, particularly those from the black radical tradition and re- engaging in those works, like, you know, the works of Rodney and stuff, yeah. it was literally like a liberating, a liberating force for me. Literally was kind of like, wow, now this makes sense. This gives me concrete organizing values now, as opposed to, you know, total abstraction. So I can totally understand and relate to that journey. When speaking about like politics now, again, I don't want to, um, I know you have no 
a true affinity to America. So I think I can cuss America all day. (laughs) I won't say any group names, but there's a particular brand of people who organizes in America. And it seems like their politics stops at Medicaid for all for Americans and debt relief or student loan relief and no other issue seems important. And then they call themselves leftists or those who are socialists. I don't, what's going on there? <laughs> like, what is going on? Why is it that? And then there's, and then when I, when I engage with these people, the normal response is the other thing, ideas of being an internationalist is, is too grand. It's too much of a grand topic. You can't get working class people to care about these issues. That's why we just focus on the issues that we can win on. What's going on? What would the response be to that? My friend, you are very clever. Uh, <laughs> I like you a lot already. You are very good uh, in raising some of these questions. Look, I'll be very honest with you. And, and I'm saying this as I, I don't hide my Marxism-Leninism. I don't yep. hide my radical politics. I, I at The work we do from the People's Forum is often very radical. And we don't hide yep. our internationalist positions. We... We insist on talking about every issue all the time, but we are not in disagreement with other political forces in the U.S. or actually anywhere else in the world who are struggling with different programs and different agendas. And I'll tell you why. Particularly right now in the United States, the U.S. government, due to the, the, the major crisis initiated by the former administration of Trump, has lost much of its political hegemony. Biden has not been able to recover that, partly because there has been no real solution to the crisis initiated by the pandemic. There has been no real economic solution to the problems of everyday people. There have not been any real solutions for any of the problems that the majority of poor people and working people in this country live with. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that there are over 140 million people who are basically living on the edges of society. Yeah. Nobody addresses their needs. And partly it's because they can't. The system is not capable of providing a response to these people. So wherever there are people organizing, if it's just for healthcare, if it's even for voting rights, whatever it is, it advances the political struggle. Anything that mobilizes people into political struggle, for me, is a good step. I I can't be in disagreement with that. If anything, I would only wish that more Marxists would actually get involved in that type of work in order to actually mobilize our own political agenda as well. Mm-hmm. But I stay away from critiques of that type of organizing, even if I don't always agree with the end result. But at this moment in history, we need people to be in struggle. Absolutely. By any means necessary, Absolutely. in any place where they're in. And sadly, because and I will be less clever than you and less diplomatic, but there are, you know, organizations of the left that do not engage with poor people in this country, that don't engage in the struggles of working people. And that, and that, this is, and that creates a vacuum that is filled by other forces. 100%, 100%. So I won't criticize, you know, the forces that do want to work with poor people in this country. 100%. Thank you. And I think finally, have you been privy or aware or kept up with discourse on Twitter right now. I mean, every day there's there's some kind of leftist infighting, but the most recent one has been what is being called proletariat patriotism. I hadn't heard of that one. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I go on Twitter every once in a while, but I cannot say longer than two or three minutes because it's just (laughs) overwhelming 
with the <laughs> I don't blame you. of trash debate that is completely virtual, has no meaning or no significance in reality. I can only guess what this debate is about, but I, it, it sounds... I won't even pull you in. I won't even pull you in then. If, if, if you've been able to save yourself from it, I'll, I'll switch over to another question. Some people, especially young people, feel quite helpless when it comes to organising. What would your, since you're definitely on the ground and you're always involved, what would your kind of words be to them? Get involved. Get involved. Look for what organising is happening on the ground in your own community. Yeah. Look to see what some of the major organisations of the left are doing. And I will say, there's DSA, Democratic Socialists of America. You can disagree with them on many things, but they're doing work. There's a party for socialism and liberation. You can disagree with them on other things, but they're doing work across the ground. There are other forces of the left that are doing things. Join something. Be part of something. Be aware that our collective effort is essentially the only thing capable of transforming society. Mm -hmm. For real. For real. Manolo, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your time. We will be on the lookout for when the cap when the reading of Capital is starting at the People's Forum. <laughs> and I hope to have you on as a guest in the future again. I think we have so much more to talk about. For as sure. always, I will leave Manolo's socials in the description of this episode. This is the Malcolm Effect of Momadou. Please like, comment, subscribe. Be that on Spotify or Apple Podcast. Until next time, peace out, guys.